On this episode of AvTalk, John Walton joins us to help us understand the complexity of transporting the newly approved COVID vaccine and why there's a run on dry ice. Plus, we look at 2020 and try desperately to escape to 2021 as fast as we can. Hello and welcome to episode 100 of AvTalk. I am Ian Pechnik here as always with Jason Rabinowitz. And hello, Ian. You sound quite happy today. I, you know what? It's episode 100. I have mustered the energy from where I am not sure, but I have mustered it. And I'm You've excited. been storing it all year long for this moment. That's a way to put it. Yeah. That's exactly what I've been doing. Was it everything you'd hope it would be? Not that we've actually well, recorded I, it yet. So maybe, I don't know. Maybe it would, I don't maybe know. We're, we're don't know. a minute in. So uh, let's hope for the best, shall we? It's episode 100. We've made it this far in what has been a year of, I don't even know what words I could possibly use to describe this year in a family-friendly aviation-themed podcast. So I will just leave that to our dear listeners' imagination. But we do end the year with good news. Rare. Um, we <laughs> Very rare in the past many episodes. There is an approved vaccine in the US. There are two approved vaccines, the Pfizer-BioNTech vaccine, the first one, and then the Moderna vaccine. So we're on our way. The first people have been poked in the arm, and there are more people being poked in the arm as we speak. So that's the good news that we start with. And we will have John Walton on the program in just a little bit to learn more about the aviation angle, because as our good friend John Ostrower always says, there's always an aviation angle. It's true. And in this case, there is a, a very large aviation component. So we're going to learn more about the challenges and logistics of transporting the vaccine that needs to be stored at extremely cold temperatures. So we're going to learn all about that in just a little bit. But first, we turn to our now revived bi-weekly check-in of the 737 MAX. Notice how we didn't say the bi-weekly Boeing bungle because they, they've been good recently. Nothing but they, good news out of Boeing. Mostly. Well, mostly. Mostly. <laughs> I mean, any good news well, with Boeing is good news. So. Right, right. So we've got, in the past couple of weeks, Goal has returned their aircraft to service. They were the first airline to put the 737 MAX back into service. They've been operating just short of two dozen uh, 737 MAX flights a day. They've got seven aircraft in the fleet, and I think they've brought them all back online at this point, maybe six. I have to double check that data. But they're back in the running. Aeromexico will return to service on the 21st of December, at least that's the schedule as it is now. And then uh, barring any other announcements from other airlines, American, which we thought was going to be the first on the 29th of December, will now be the third airline to put the MAX back into service. Yeah, they ended up not even being close to the first airline, which I think is fine. This isn't really a title that I think any airline needs to claim they were first at. So naturally, they will just end up as third. But this is really all we we have in the near term. Goal, Aeromexico, and American. And it seems like there's going to be a bit of a gap between we get any fourth airline returning the max to service. Yeah, we've heard a lot of 
chatter about Q1 2021. Yeah, Q1 I believe, 20- uh, so United I mean, is that's a window. Yeah, United time. is March. I think the same along with Southwest. Their date keeps shifting around. Uh, Air Canada, I don't even think they have it in the schedule. But other than those, there are no other airline with the Max in the world, as far as I know, even has anything filed in the the schedules right now. So they will reappear when they are good and ready. You will see it when you see it. But then again, it's still not technically ungrounded anywhere else in the world right now, is it? Brazil is good to go. And the U.S. is good to go. Everywhere else, we're still waiting for for the final approvals, which in a few cases, the case of Europe and the case of Canada, it sounds like that will be a January event. Looks like we're, we're looking at past the beginning of the year for those things. Elsewhere, we haven't really heard anything. I mean, as we've talked about when we had John on the program a few episodes ago, and we've talked about a few times since, we haven't heard from China. There's been some speculation that Again, Q1 2021, whatever that might mean. That's a, you know a 90-day window, really. What we'll see, we don't know yet. But it'll be interesting to see how quickly things move after the beginning of the year and who starts bringing those back outside of Europe, outside of Canada, and outside of, of China. There are other national regulators that have a say in this and have a few uh, or a fairly decent amount of aircraft. So we'll keep an eye on it, obviously, and, and see when things come back and where they start to come back. On that note, though, we have seen Boeing already start to trickle out deliveries. There have been two airlines taking deliveries, I believe, so far, United and has American taken one just yet? United took two, I believe. They took the first post-grounding delivery. That was November 27519, a MAX 9. And then Americans taken, I believe, two MAX 8s so far. So, I mean, you know, it's going to take a long time for airlines to really start taking deliveries again. But we're seeing, you know, test flights pop up on a more regular basis, an increase in test flights. And then some airlines that we haven't seen kind of active, you know, the Boeing test flights for some airlines that we haven't seen active for quite some time. So hopefully, as national regulators start to bring things back online, Boeing can start to deliver those aircraft. The one thing that that has just been kind of not eating at me, I'm not losing sleep over it, but I really want to know, like you valet your car and they park it, but then, you know, they park another car in front of it. And then you want to go get your car, they got to move the other car and it's a whole mess. Like what happens if an airline says, no, I want to take delivery of that particular craft. And it's like fifth in line and they have to move 20 aircraft to get to it. Like, I hope your tug has a lot of gas in it. You must. Yeah. I've been wondering how that's going to work. I mean, are you just going to have to wait? Like we talked about with John, how they're going to start delivering new aircraft for, so you, the more recent built aircraft that haven't been sitting around for a long time, those will get delivered first. But when we start getting into the backlog, I mean, are the deliveries just going to be determined by where and when they parked the aircraft? Because that seems, I guess, somewhat counterintuitive because I ordered mine first. I want it now. You'll get your airplane when it's good and ready. But also remember, (laughs) Boeing has said it's going to take them potentially years to clear the backlog to get all of these- Not potentially years. It will take years. It will take years years to get all of these aircraft uh, modified, prepped, ready for service and actually delivered. So there, I I guess it is a good question. If Petchmo Air's MAX 8 is in the back of the line or in the middle of a cluster of aircraft, get a Skycrane and- you know, pluck it up and, and move it somewhere else. Probably can't do that. 
but a lot of tugging aircraft around. Well, now Roswell. I want to. <laughs> yeah, that's true. That's true. And now I want to get a sky crane. I, I mean, I did you not already want a sky crane? Well, it's setting aside now, I want it for a specific purpose, not just to have it. I think I remember a couple years ago you told me that uh, a sky crane was operating in downtown Chicago, and you only learned about it after the fact, and you got really, really upset. You didn't get to see it. Yeah, I remember that happening. I'm not sure how upset I was, but I will, in hindsight, be more upset than I was then. Well, there you go. Because I missed it, and now it's, you know, that's unfortunate. But barring that, there was one thing that struck me about the Max kind of orders and deliveries. We talked about Ryanair's order for 75 airplanes last episode, but then over the past couple of weeks, Virgin Australia ordered some 737 MAX 10s, but the announcement was very strange to me. And you hit on this, I think, in a tweet. Yeah. this The tweet from Boeing says, thank you, Virgin Australia, for selecting the 737 family as the backbone of your future domestic and short-haul international fleet. But the funny thing is, this is not a new order. Virgin Australia, who is not in great shape right now, didn't all of a sudden, order the Max out of nowhere. It's re-announcing the order after Virgin cut back their number of orders and actually deferred what they had already ordered. So it was a very strange, upbeat announcement for something that's actually bad news all around. But there you go. So Virgin Australia, I believe, is only actually ending up taking the 737 Max 10 aircraft for which it had a number of those on order from now from a 25 MAX 10s taking delivery from mid-2023. So just a very strange way to communicate that they're no longer taking the 73 MAX 8 and the 10 they are still taking won't happen for another few years. The whole announcement was really a very, very upbeat, positive way of saying thank you for not canceling the entire order. I guess so. That's one way to look at it. I mean, you know, it, looking on the bright still, side out in Chicago, you have to. I mean, well, I mean, globally, we're net negative on aircraft orders this year. We'll I see mean, if Virgin ever actually takes these orders. They have to certify the aircraft first. That is a stumbling block. Isn't I mean, that's. Uh, I, I don't know if I'd call it a stumbling block necessarily, but it's yeah. a thing. It's a thing that needs to happen. But I heard that maybe Boeing could use something called a global engagement pilot to make it easier. Have you heard about this new thing? And so this just came this breaking was news those, on the podcast uh, break- on Air for two days. <laughs> so you'll have probably already read the uh, the Reuters exclusive that won't be very exclusive by then. I'm sure you know some PR will roll out by then. But tell me more about this and why do I need one? Okay. I'm just going to read the article. So thank you, writers. <laughs> Boeing company is hiring up to 160 pilots to be embedded at airlines in the latest bid to ensure the 737 MAX has a smooth comeback after a 20-month safety ban, according to recruitment documents seen by Reuters and people involved in. The new Global Engagement Pilots Act instructors or cockpit observers on 35-day assignments an equivalent annual salary, you know what, I won't get into that, doesn't matter. It's very odd in that basically Boeing is going out of its way to make expert MAX pilots available to airlines to reassure the MAX pilots at airlines. I'm really not sure what they're getting at if they're so confident that the 
paper training and the simulator updated simulator training that the pilots are getting it's sufficient what is this about do you have any what's your take on this so what's interesting to me and because this is breaking news as it were i haven't been able to find the old article but there was an article a few months ago now i think about how the in-house group of boeing pilots that normally do training for customers you know so the you know Petchmo Air comes to Boeing and says I want to buy the the 777 300ER we've never flown it before I need to get everybody certified and Boeing says okay there's you know a group of pilots in house and they train you know your pilots on 777 300ER and I say great those pilots got frozen out of this And there was talk that this would happen a few months ago because those pilots were upset that they weren't being given these roles. So it makes sense to me that Boeing would send pilots to airlines to say, okay, anybody have any questions? We'll do ride-alongs and things like that. That makes sense to me. Why it's you know, why this is a new thing, why they're doing it now and didn't announce this months ago. That's what interests me. But no, I, I don't have any special insight into why why they're doing this now. Yeah. It, it, I'm not sure really what these stationing these pilots at these airlines will do since they're not Boeing employees as of now. They're being hired by Boeing. The article goes on to say pilots must have 1,000 hours of instructor experience and no incidents, accidents, losses or violations and must be licensed on the 737 and other Boeing jet liners. So it's not even hiring pilots that are certified to fly at the max. It's just pilots in general. I I guess it's to give new max pilots a confidence boost that someone is there watching out for them. But if the changes to MCAS and the aircraft were actually successful, why would that even be necessary? Sometimes you just want somebody to hold your hand. I understand the technical argument you're making, this doesn't sound like a program that is based on technical necessity. It sounds like they're hiring a group of pilots, not necessarily for marketing, but for relationships. These sound like relationship pilots, which is not a thing, but something that I've just made up. Well, we'll see what else comes out on this. And uh, yeah, I mean, breaking news coming to you two days after it broke. So this whole thing could be, you know, just they're like, no, we forget it. Oh, By Friday, the Reuters you could be listening just to updated. Like, There's all sorts of new paragraphs I haven't read yet. Oh dear. Okay, you see, it, it updated in real time. All right, let's move on before we end up, you know, in a I don't know what we end up in, but let's move on. So Jason has been a huge proponent, fan. Where's this going? What did I do? I don't know where it's going. But you've been deep in the Mitsubishi, then MRJ, then Space Jet. Now, it's probably not going to happen. No, it is uh, officially, unofficially vaporware. Mitsubishi heavy industries in the midst of the coronavirus economic impact has in the past couple of months really, really paired back its efforts to get the space jet certified and just the other day announced that it will lay off 95% of staff, I believe, hiring, leaving only a skeleton crew to do, I don't know what, keep the aircraft from exploding, I don't know. But basically, this is 
almost certainly, without a doubt, the end of the line for the Mitsubishi MRJ space jet program. I cannot envision a scenario where this aircraft will ever be certified or delivered to an airline, which is funny because I believe they have a couple painted in ANA or JAL livery out in Japan, but all activities are ceased. And I don't know if this is official, it's probably not, but it's got to be the end of the line for the space jet that will never enter commercial service. So when you say never, do you mean never? I mean, never. I mean, do you think they'll never pick this up again? I mean, it will never be picked up again. It was an aircraft developed with the wrong market factors in mind. It was not, it could never have even entered service with the airlines that put in potential orders for it. That's what always got me. And we talked about this well, forever with, ago with John, who, who we're going to bring on in a few minutes. And you guys were in Japan. And the one thing that you both said was, why are they doing this? They didn't have, because any, I mean, so the problem with the space jet is it was just too damn heavy. It was built with the assumption that the U.S. carriers would alter their scope clause agreements with the pilot union so that they will be able to fly heavier aircraft because the space jet was overweight. That's just not going to happen. That is a market realization that is just so faulty beyond belief to hinge your entire aircraft program on. Just never made sense. I don't get it. I've been trying to think of a comparison here. Like if I was going to build a plane and it needed like sloped runways or like it needed- Don't like even ramp. start with that. Well, but I'm just saying like, and that was my assumption, like that airports would, you know, slope their runways to 45 degrees or whatever that my airplane needed. Like that just seems, A, it seems ahistorical. They develop and- but why I don't think it was bother? intentional. Like, I, yeah. I think it was that the aircraft just was developed heavier than they intended it to be. But they okay, had no sure, mechanism to actually remedy that situation, which is problematic. But they were very much of the opinion that they it wasn't going to be a problem, that the US airlines were going to modify their scope clause and this aircraft would be flying with the US majors. And there was not, not even an inkling that that was in the realm of possibility, let alone a likelihood. So this aircraft is really doomed from the start to the point where I can't even imagine it flying as like a token aircraft like the A318 did with Air France. So I don't even think we'll see it flying domestically in Japan. So setting this exact aircraft aside for the moment, do you think that we'll see a return by Mitsubishi, a concentration on a regional jet? The space jet is gone, but we're going for the galaxy jet. Oh, go, or, go, or the, go the universe jet. Maybe the universe jet, but uh, no, yeah. I don't. I think Mitsubishi heavy industry has burned so much capital on the MRJ space jet program that it would be foolish to try it again because I don't think they learned any lessons along the way, to be completely honest. One interesting idea that was floated on Twitter, I don't remember who said this, so apologies to them, but there is a weird far out scenario where Boeing could be interested to pick up the program and reignite it since the joint venture or whatever with Embraer did not go through. And it really would fit that gap in Boeing's product lineup that anything below the 737 MAX 8 really doesn't exist at Boeing. Could be an interesting niche there, but I honestly, 
the MRJ is just, it's a dated clunker of a regional jet that just has no place in the market. So it's theoretically possible, not likely, but theoretically Anything's possible. possible, but it's not going to That happen. we could see a BRJ. That would be interesting. That would be interesting. I mean, we know that Boeing is interested in the market segment since they attempted the tie-up with Embraer, but that did not go well. And honestly, <laughs> I don't- It's a way to put it. Weirder things have happened. Airbus bought the A220 or C-Series from Bombardier for what? A dollar? A dollar. A dollar. So if Boeing has a, a dollar lying around to buy the space jet program, it's possible. Do they want it? I don't know. We'll see. Here's my throw it at the wall and see what sticks idea that just came to me. Take the MRJ, enlarge it, and turn that into your NMA. It'll never happen. It's probably a crazy idea. And please, someone send me an email I hate at it. podcast at fr24.com I hate telling it. me no. why that's a terrible idea. Terrible idea. Please, someone do that. Let's go to Russia. Oh, cold. And yeah, let's talk about what just happened. So, Russia, the Russian government, similar to the US government, has an aircraft that is specially configured for. It's electromagnetically hardened. It's built to withstand an electromagnetic pulse. In the case of nuclear war, it's designed as an airborne command and control. In the event that we're all dead, there are a couple dozen people flying around in the sky. Call it what it is. Just you know, whatever. It's the doomsday. There you plane. go. There it is. Anyway, so it was in maintenance. The Russian aircraft was in maintenance, and uh, thieves made off with. Well, the radios. Or something. Or something. The article I read mentioned this is radio equipment. Yeah, but it also said it was worth like several hundred US dollars. Several thousand US Several thousand, dollars. whatever. Yeah, what, I thought it was like $13,000. What sensitive top secret equipment on a doomsday plane costs only $13,000? Maybe they stole like the actual like Radio. Like the radio, like the AM, FM, Sony exactly. boombox. Yeah. Like what specialized military equipment costs that little? Like how much does a toilet seat cost on a KC-135? Like $10,000. You don't want to like, know. You don't want to know. What did they steal that to be that sensitive, yet also that inexpensive? It's very curious. But also- There are so many- Fishy smelling details about this story. Very, very- Interesting. Also, I'm shocked that this was leaked out, that we even know this happened because it's extremely embarrassing. Not even leaked out, but like reported like, hey, this happened. It wasn't like a we discovered it. You well, know, it we like found out about it because the local police put out like a, a help wanted poster <laughs> saying like, do you <laughs> exactly. know who stole our top secret doomsday plane radio? <laughs> We want our mixtape back. Can you imagine if like the Baltimore police put out a wanted sign for like, do you know who stole Trump's flat screen TV off Air Force One? I mean, now that would be, oh, I don't even know. But it's just like, this is just incredible. Yes, but it, it does raise legitimate security concerns of how the oh, hell did someone absolutely. break into a military base get on the doomsday plane, manage to steal something and get away with it. Right. Yeah. That's a very good question. And one, if you have any answers to, please contact local Russian authorities. Not us. We don't, we don't like want to know assistance. about it. Don't contact us. Uh, 
I mean, you can contact us about it. We'll pass the information along. I mean, I would still love to know, but it was just like, okay, that's something. Let's take a quick break. And then we will come back and be joined by John Walton, who is going to fill us in on everything he has learned. He's gone down a very deep hole on vaccine transportation, logistics, lots of really good stuff about how airlines, airports, and anyone else associated with getting a a COVID vaccine and really vaccines in general out and distributed is managing these things. So we're going to talk with John in just a moment. So stay with us. We will be right back. Welcome back. We are now joined by a gentleman who has done a very deep dive into the deep freeze. Aerospace journalist John Walton is gracious enough to join us here at the end of the year for our 100th episode, no less, to tell us everything he's learned about how the recently developed COVID vaccines are going to be transported and distributed. And we're going to focus, obviously, on the aviation component of that. So, John, thank you so much for joining us. Mise en fond! Congratulations on your 100th episode. Thank you, sir. Welcome back, John. Welcome back. I feel like we last had you on episode negative 20 or something when we were in Japan. It feels like literally a lifetime ago. No, I think the the last time I was here was, were you not on my terrace here in France? That's right. Yeah, you've been on a couple times. That's right. Yeah. Yeah. Both returning guests. Happier, better times than right. In fairness, it's 2020. What is months? How are time? I mean. Exactly. Yes. We don't measure time anymore. We just kind of look outside and see if the sun might be up. I don't know. But you have gone well into the weeds over the past few months on how the COVID vaccines have been manufactured, stored, and transported. So let's just you know start at the beginning. They go off the production line, and then what happens? So that will depend on which vaccine it is and how cold it needs to be. Some of the newer vaccine technologies is what's called messenger RNA. I've likened that to, imagine you own a bar, okay? So Petchmo Airways has a bar outside. Excellent. It's a big and popular bar. Um, You very much do not want your bar to become infested with Nazis. So you show the door staff a picture of a swastika. And then anyone who has a swastika on their shirt is not allowed in. That's basically what you do with an mRNA vaccine. You show a piece of this spike protein, right, which we all know the coronavirus, you know, what it looks like. Part of the spike on the coronavirus means that you, that your body will recognize and produce antibodies against it. This is new technology, which means that it is very complex and you need to keep it very cold. The US Centers for Disease Control and Prevention categorize three basic ranges of temperature. There's refrigerated, two degrees to eight degrees Celsius. You'll need to figure out what that is in Fahrenheit because I'm not going to quote you airplane weight in bushels either. But it's sort of London (laughs) winter We'll put it in the show notes. Yeah, London winter, right? Sort of a sweater, perhaps a jacket, maybe a little scarf, right? Within the ranges of human tolerance, that one. Right, yes. So there's refrigerated, then there's frozen, which is sort of minus 20 Celsius, which is sort of Irkutsk or Ikaluit in northern Canada. 
right? These are very cold, very cold indeed. Then you have what's called ultra cold, which is basically minus 80 Celsius, which is as cold as it has ever got in winter in the world's coldest city of Yakutsk in Russia. So yes, these are very cold temperatures that we're talking about for in particular this Pfizer vaccine, which needs to be kept at minus 80. That gets complicated because if you're transporting the Pfizer vaccine, you have a certain amount of time to get it where it needs to go because nobody really has minus 80 refrigerated trucks, including aviation, right? Aviation can basically get you down to minus 20 in the we're taking especially good care of your pharmaceutical product sort of offering that they have, right? So that includes what are known as cool dollies, which are basically giant minus 20 refrigerators that you can drive around an airport. That's about how cold you can probably get with a really good refrigerated truck and so on. So if you're transporting one of these minus 80 vaccines, the vaccine, as we saw in Michigan, if we do you know uh, Joshua Nahart, Maniac Myler on the on these here internets. He took some video of the FedEx and UPS trucks leaving Pfizer's production site, uh, heading straight for the airport to be loaded on a UPS 757 and a FedEx A300, I believe, this week. So those very cold vaccines go straight from the production facility to be flown somewhere to be distributed. And literally on the other end, it'll happen exactly the same. The vaccines will be offloaded straight from the plane onto a truck and probably within a day or so be injected into somebody's arm, right? So what we're seeing here is that this is none of the supply chain is really set up all that advanced for these new RNA vaccines and that nothing can really chill all the way down to negative 80 Celsius for an extended period of time. So this isn't just an aviation problem. This is a global supply chain and logistics problem that aviation has just a major part of. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. Aviation has the long haul transportation part of it, right? The sort of things where you can't drive it in a couple of days. Now, Pfizer, obviously, and BioNTech, who are the German company with the mRNA technology that Pfizer is essentially, shall we say, commercializing, industrializing, they've known about this for a while, right? So they've been building what are essentially dry ice cardboard thermos boxes which you put the vaccines in in little trays and you fill the box around it with dry ice, right? So imagine you've got a vacuum thermos and you're filling the vacuum around it with dry ice. And the dry ice keeps it cold inside and that'll work for a matter of some days, right? Days, weeks, you probably have to refill the thing sometimes. That is just a complicated endeavor. And the aviation complication of that is that there are dry ice restrictions because dry ice is essentially frozen carbon dioxide and if you put too much carbon dioxide sublimating or essentially evaporating on a plane, you risk suffocating anybody around because it displaces all the oxygen, which is, I believe the technical term is bad. Yes, suffocating your flight crew is generally frowned upon. Yeah, 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 exactly, exactly. So I think I saw recently, at least in uh, the FAA in the US, has actually increased the amount of dry ice that these specific flights can haul. Is that correct? They've put in place details like you will need to test for carbon dioxide. You will need to be able to essentially sort of put your pilots on oxygen for a while. Um, you know, there's all sorts of things like sort of making sure that no one person is in the thing too long. You have to put the air conditioning units on on the ground, hook it up to ground air and so on and so forth. But essentially what they're reckoning now is that you can get something like a million doses on a wide body. A million doses. That's impressive. 
Yeah, so that's what that's the thing that Emirates managed to do with a previous vaccine a couple of years ago. I want to say like twenty eighteen, they fit a million doses on a triple seven freighter. Now, these vaccines are not being produced in any sort of uh, volume that would require a triple seven freighter, right? As we saw, right, you've got a FedEx A three hundred and a UPS seven five seven taking the first shipments. Yeah, I believe those are the probably two of the smallest freighters in their mainline fleet, actually, if not the smallest. Yeah, I mean, did, did FedEx just take those new ATR freighters, which I suspect are significantly smaller, but still. I think the first was just delivered over the weekend, yeah. Yeah. I mean, look, I'm all here for tiny purple planes, don't get me wrong. But yeah, these are not, you know, no one's parking a 747F outside the factory and filling it up immediately, right? That's not what's happening. Yet, we hope. I mean, that, that's well, the. Yes and no. So. It may be that the role for the Pfizer vaccine, because of the complexities in producing and distributing it, is just the early response vaccine, right? Because you have other vaccines following on from, for example, Moderna, um, which needs just to be at minus 20, which is basically normal commercial aviation in the more developed world, right? Plus, of course, a significant amount of, like, that's what you can do if you're Ethiopian Airlines, I know, has an African freight hub in Addis, Emirates in Dubai, Frankfurt for Europe, and so on and so forth. Right? You can do that if you're a large and experienced pharma cargo airline. right? And then, of course, we have there are vaccines out there which only need to be refrigerated to 8 Celsius, which is like your average fridge. And that just gets very, very easy to distribute. All you have to do is, is really manufacture them. And that's what we'll probably see. The CDC essentially was running two well, I guess it's three scenarios of what was going to be happening with the vaccinations. One was that drug A, which was basically the Pfizer drug, right, an ultra-cold drug was approved. Scenario B was that a frozen drug, the minus 20 degrees Celsius, was approved. And scenario C was that both of them were approved. And essentially, the idea is that you take the ultra-cold Pfizer drug to the large-scale distribution centers, right? Which is why we're seeing it at hospitals, because hospitals will have this minus 80-degree fridge, quite a lot of them, the larger hospitals in larger centers, right? The minus 21, you put it to the sort of secondary centers, right? Like, so for example, you might see that in going out more frequently to nursing homes, for example, or to sort of smaller centers for regional vaccination, while you keep the more complex one in a an innovative chain that is significantly easier to manage, basically. So with all of this, you mentioned Ethiopian's hub in Addis, you mentioned Frankfurt. What are airports themselves doing to to either prepare for the first vaccine, the, the Pfizer vaccine or the, the Moderna vaccine, which was just recently approved in the US? Or are they kind of preparing for more down the line when we're starting to see a wider rollout of maybe another vaccine that doesn't require quite so much cold storage? So for airports right now, I think it's basically get what you're sent through as quickly as possible with a minimum of red tape, a minimum of delay, right? 20 minutes of faffing about here and there isn't going to make a massive difference. A two-day customs delay would. Now, I can't imagine there is a government in the world that would make a two-day customs delay on a vaccine right now. So that's not exactly a risk. But what you've seen is, for example, I understand that United has moved some of their transfer locations closer to where their cargo aircraft or their cargo unit is, I guess, um, at O'Hare, right? So you're basically taking it off the plane onto a truck as quickly as possible. And then, of course, in the mega hubs, right? So um, Emirates did a lot of work earlier on this year trying to put a significant amount more 
capacity into its DWC hub, right? So, yeah, they essentially opened the DWC terminal as, as what they're calling an anchor hub for this cold chain storage. So are they using the actual, using the airport as a storage facility, basically, and that's a new development? Well, see, the thing is that nobody's really storing this, right? As fast as it can be manufactured, it's going into people's arms. So aviation doesn't really have a storage thing. It just has a transfer thing. And to be honest, with the amount of nonstop capacity that we have right now, it really isn't that sort of... Aviation doesn't have to say like, oh, you know what? Yeah, okay. We'll just hold on to this pallet of COVID vaccine for a week, right? That's not a thing that's happening. You just have to make sure that it doesn't get too hot on the way. And that's where these cool dollies, which are basically big refrigerated trucks that drive around the, the apron, come in. So it's an interesting point that you brought up before we started recording that typically when we're talking about air freight, it works in that the freight, the shipments get to a distribution facility at the airport and the freight waits for the aircraft as opposed to this where it's almost like a more of a just-in-time delivery system where the aircraft is actually waiting around for the vaccine to be delivered. So I'm assuming that's not how things typically work. No. In cargo, typically what you do is you you assemble your cargo at the aircraft. There are a couple of episodes of, um, what was that Emirates documentary in Dubai called? Was it um, uh, City in the Sky, I think was the one? N- no, it had like it. sort of three seasons. And you know what, it may have had different names and different geographies. But it was one with that customer service station going, Live Snakes! Do you remember that one? Anyway, there's, it's, it's a National Geographic that, but, channel. But if we dig it up, we'll... Uh, we'll I'm pretty sure that was Snakes on a Plane and you were thinking about <laughs> Samuel L. Jackson. No, no, definitely not. Ultimate Airport Dubai, that's it. It's a National Geographic ah, channel. Ah, yes, yes, that's right. And yes, they were this was showing what the, the normal thing is, which is essentially you, you consolidate the freight and you then sort of move it out. And this happens in a variety of different ways, right? So I've toured quite a few of these facilities, one that comes to mind is Finnair's in Helsinki, right, which takes a significant amount of northern Europe of the fish and sends it to various restaurants in Eastern Asia. So essentially, they put the fish on a truck and they drive the truck to Helsinki and they there are you know, big receiving warehouses and the, the fish comes off the truck, goes into the warehouse, waits around for the next flight to, let's say, Tokyo, and then gets loaded on the plane and goes off. I don't think the waiting around for the next flight to Tokyo is going to be the problem here, right? I think that UPS and FedEx and all the other folks, because passenger airlines are also very much involved here. I think they're going to have the planes waiting for the vaccine. It is not like this year, um, the planes are doing an awful lot else. So, Exactly. So that's what we saw with the first shipments going out from Kalamazoo and Michigan. Both FedEx and UPS dispatched those aircraft to Grand Rapids and Lansing specifically just to pick up those vaccines. So they weren't exactly waiting around in a distribution center waiting for uh, that evening's flight out to the mega hubs. Yeah, exactly. Now, of course, that wasn't the very first flight of any of these things, right? Like that was a fairly obviously staged situation because you had the two branded UPS and FedEx trucks rolling quietly out of the obvious Pfizer branded location to the, you know, that was safe. Like people have been moving this vaccine around for a matter of weeks at this point, right? And it's being manufactured on both sides of the Atlantic and indeed globally. So this has been going on. It was That wasn't just the first one, but it was a pretty good media opportunity, I've got to say. <laughs> Sure. I mean, we've talked about you know some of the 
we, we talked about United and how they've reconfigured their operation at Chicago O'Hare, and, and they're bringing in vaccine from Brussels. And you've got uh, UPS flying in from Cologne, I believe, into their world port for Canadian distribution or onward to Canadian distribution. So, I mean, there's, you know, no fewer than probably what, uh, 11 billion moving parts at this point. It's pretty fascinating to me to see how, you know, the different, it's become a very, and, and rightfully so, kind of a pride point among airlines, you know, no fewer than I think six airlines at this point have put together social promotions and B-roll video of baggage tugs and things like that moving, you know, moving the vaccine around. So certainly a lot of you know pride to be shared by the airlines for moving these things around and, and how they're doing those, you know, various things. Whereas United's using, you know, what would normally be belly cargo on a passenger route, they're carrying vaccines and an extra, I think it was 15,000 pounds of dry ice. You know, and what was it? Uh, Turkish, I think, was trialing various vaccine containers and things like that. So, a lot of interesting things happening around the vaccine transportation. And I was wondering if in researching this and things like that, you've come across airlines or airports or, or anybody that's said, okay, we're going to use this, but use it for something else too. You know, discovering different ways to ship things, more efficient methods for cold storage and things like that. Or is it just kind of, this is a, a very specialized, hopefully one-off process? So look, I don't think anyone's going to sort of finish up with this and suddenly decide, oh, you know what, this is absolutely not relevant to anything we'll ever do before. In the same way, the passengers aren't suddenly going to just not care about cleanliness after this pandemic is over, right? It will fundamentally change the way that we do things. And in many ways, this has benefited from other things as well. The Ebola vaccine, for example, is another one of these ones that needs to be transported at minus 80. And there is a company out there that basically has what looks very much like a little beer keg almost, which again, you fill up with dry ice and you fill up with vaccines and you take out to some very rural and remote areas to get people vaccinated against Ebola. So yeah, the I think the obviously the scale is massive, right? I had one senior cargo person say, no, this is bigger than the iPhone, which is the sort of gold standard, um, sort of lead standard, I'm not sure. But that's the thing that everything is measured against, right, is the annual iPhone spike. And I think we're all very lucky that this didn't happen in at iPhone time, because that is where essentially that's what all global cargo aircraft and the global cargo industry flex towards on an annual basis. I think as we get more vaccines, of course, after the Christmas period in particular, that will again be useful because there will be capacity that was spun up for Christmas, given that everybody, not everybody, obviously, but many people this year are ordering more online and therefore requiring more deliveries. That capacity will hopefully be able to be kept in the system for vaccine delivery. Although, again, it may not be that you need a 747F to do this, or even a 777F, right? It may be that this can be done with 757s and A300s, or even smaller aircraft, right? I think that you would probably want to keep it something that can take the large ULDs, the unit load devices, which you might think of as the, as the cargo crates that aviation uses, because those can be properly refrigerated down to at least minus 20, which makes your job a lot easier. So it makes your routine if you're transporting one of the minus 20 vaccines, and it makes it easy if you're transporting minus 80 because your dry ice sublimes evaporates more slowly than if you were at room temperature. So throughout all of this, 
I mean, I've learned, and I think we all have that vaccines need to be transported at sub-zero temperatures. I knew well, that some of them were refrigerated, but I knew they were refrigerated because I mean, you kind of, you know, you've seen that thing, you know, the flu vaccine every year where they keep them in the fridge and they pull them out and things like that, where they, when they're trying to convince people to get their flu shot and stuff. But I mean, what percentage of vaccines are we talking about that need to be transferred? I mean, you mentioned the Ebola vaccine. Is this kind of like a, a category by itself because of how the vaccine was developed? Or is this just a something that might, you know, vaccine development might be moving towards? So I think the person to answer that question is really an, an epidemiologist or a vaccine specialist. I simple airline journalist. But as I, I took a shot. Yeah, yeah, but, well, <laughs> hey, I'm waiting for mine. But uh, look, I... <laughs> <laughs> that, that was a vaccine joke. I, from what I understand, I think it's the fact that these are leading edge technology vaccines. And I think that's part of the reason is that the first ones to come through are have been carefully tested. Some of this element is that they haven't been tested for effectiveness at anything warmer than minus 80. They may well be fine at minus 20, but they weren't tested to it, right? As we all end up learning to live with the SARS-CoV-2 virus that causes COVID-19, because it's not going to go away as soon as we're all vaccinated, right? That we'll still be circulating and kids will still need to be vaccinated against it. And at some point, I would imagine we will start discovering exactly how long the half-life of the vaccine is, right? How long immunity lasts. It would not surprise me at all if we all have to get boosters every 10, 15, 20, 30 years, right? Like we all have to get vaccines for literally everything else that we get vaccines for, yeah? And you end up needing boosters. My assumption is that as more and more of these vaccine candidates come out, more and more of them will be able to be used on a refrigerated basis rather than a frozen or ultra-cold basis. It may also be that some of the ones that currently require ultra-cold or frozen can be moved up to a warmer category, as it were, through the use of uh, further research through the use of, of changing technology, changing aspects, changing the makeup of how the virus is delivered. So a lot of this current situation with can we deliver this very cold stuff at scale is going to be the same the next time we have a pandemic, right? We will almost certainly see this again. And I think that there will be a lot of learning, hopefully, taken from this by the air cargo industry, by the pharmaceutical industry, by governments on how to best prepare for that. And hopefully we will, you know, in the same way that, so that part of the thing about the Pfizer-BioNTech technology in particular is that they knew how the technology worked. The actual making of the vaccine took just a matter of days. All they had to do was isolate the correct spike protein, right? So let's go back to our bar analogy, right? All they had to do is sort of figure out, oh, these are the ones that wear swastikas rather than the ones that wear, I don't know, Confederate flags, you want neither of those people in, and you can put a vaccine against either the Confederate flag people or the swastika people, and they just had to sort of move it over from Confederate flag to swastika and sort of isolate that swastika spike protein. That will happen, I'm sure, the next time we have a pandemic, right? It may be that in the interim, they figured out how to do that process with a vaccine that can be transported and stored without requiring the minus 80. Well, I look forward to uh, getting the vaccine at some point in the future and tracking back to see what fights it took to get to me. And uh, hopefully this ultra-cold storage like thing is just Like your iPhone again, right? Yeah, you know, exactly. Sort of departed Zhengzhou, China. How many times <laughs> did it go through Lexington? <laughs> <laughs>
John Walton, aerospace journalist extraordinaire. Thank you so much for joining us on our 100th episode, no less. And the next time you're on the program, I really, truly hope that we are all sitting on your patio in the south of France. Thank you again for joining us. An absolute pleasure as always. Thanks, John. Welcome back. We learned that vaccines like it cold and stuff is complicated and stuff is complicated yeah i i mean throughout the development of this i was i didn't start thinking about this until john's post because i always assumed like pharmaceuticals you see those like envirotainers which i'm sure is a trademarked term so good job envirotainer. But like you see those things and you're like, okay, there's pharmaceuticals in there or, or something's in there and they're being you know transported, no big deal. And then you learn about all of the things that go into this. You know, you've got special temperatures and procedures and you need dry ice and you need more dry ice. And yeah, it, it's complicated. It's a lot uh, of stuff. You know, a lot of like, stuff to get right. You gotta that's an excellent area of putting it. A lot of things have to go right. And it seems so far they have. Yeah. It's I mean, important to remember that transporting vaccines is not a new thing. Right, 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 right. But doing it on this scale, at this speed, at this temperature is a new thing. Yeah. That's a very, very succinct way of putting it. So transporting things is uh, what airlines do. And there is a lot of stuff to be transported these days. And so, my friends, the AN-225 shall return. It shall fly again. It shall fly again. What's that, Ian? I think I heard someone say they don't know what the AN-225 is. (laughs) Yeah. If you're listening to this podcast and you don't know what the AN-225 is, my friends, you are in for a treat. And how did you find this podcast? Yeah, exactly. How did you? How did you? I know people have listened to this podcast on the AN-225. Oh, really? They have, yes. So the Antonov AN-225 is the world's largest cargo aircraft. As of a few years ago, it's no longer the world's largest aircraft. Thank you, Strato Launch. Does that um, even count? But, Come on. Well, I mean, I just go by what Wikipedia tells me, right? I mean, it's a plane designed to drop another plane. Yeah, there's that. Technically, I mean, this was a plane designed to carry another plane, but you uh, know, spaceship. That didn't I guess work they out. were both a plane designed to carry a spaceship, aren't they? That's true. Huh. That's true. Interesting. There you go. Connections. The AN-225 is the world's largest cargo aircraft. It was used for quite uh, – it received quite heavy usage in the early days of the COVID pandemic, March, April, I think into May. And then the problem with the AN-225 is that it needs a lot of maintenance. It's the only one there is. It's huge and it's old. And so it needs a lot of maintenance. So it operates for kind of these like sprints around the world. It's very bursty. Yeah. And then it goes into heavy maintenance for quite some time. So it's currently undergoing maintenance in anticipation of returning to service either late this year or early next year. So look for that. 
as we always try to do, we will we will try to get the schedules from the folks at Antonov to see where they're headed, when they're headed. Their ability to share that information with us is limited to what their client wishes, considering that they are an ad hoc charter airline. So sometimes the clients are not excited about that. Sometimes the clients are, are more than happy to have us along for the ride. So we will share that information as soon as we have it, hopefully well in advance. So if you are near an airfield that the AN225 will be visiting, come on Chicago, you can get some photos because it is a truly impressive aircraft. Yeah, well, I'm hoping it hauls some mail between Russia and New York here because I ordered something from <laughs> Etsy, not realizing that it was being shipped from central Russia. So it has been sitting in central Russia for the past 14 days. And what was it, about a month ago, an AN-124 was loaded top to bottom, front to back with mail and flew into JFK. So if they want to do that again with a 225, that would be excellent. I mean, so two things there. One, I'm sorry that you mistakenly ordered something from Central Russia and didn't. Yeah, the Etsy should really say like, hey, this crap you ordered is coming from the other end of the world and particularly not a great place on the other place of the world because it's really far away. I mean, I think you should have known that the authentic Matryoshka dolls were coming from Russia, but that's That's on you. That's on me. But the second thing, and more aviation related certainly, is that I'm amazed how they load these aircraft. I mean, is there anything to be amazed at what they did with the 124? They literally took bags of mail and stuffed it in the airplane. But that's what I'm amazed about. There's no like palletization or anything like that. It's boxes, bags, stuff them in until the aircraft is full. Hope that you got the weight right, I guess. Yeah. I I heard it took hours to unload that thing once it hit JFK. To me, it's like one of those things where they, uh, I guess they have them in, I know they have them in Canada for the trucks that they fill with snow that they then dump into the big pits outside of Montreal, where they drive the entire truck onto the thing and then they lift up the platform. So instead of like tilting the dump truck, instead of the dumper tilting on the dump truck, they just tilt the whole truck. I wonder if you could do that with an AM124. Just get the sky crane again. <laughs> just lift up the tail. Just, just lift it. Lift up the nose. Shake it out. Pick that up into the air <laughs> and shake it so everything falls out the back. Problems. We are solving so many problems in this episode. That should be the name this of the podcast. Problem solvers. Solving problems. Problem solvers. Yes, indeed. So the AN one two two five is coming back. This is partially due, which I mean, this would be a longer discussion worthy of probably its own episode of the podcast. But part of the reason that the 225 is coming back, and I think this was alluded to in the announcement, the Volga Dnieper 124 fleet is currently grounded because of the incident that happened in uh, Novosibirsk uh, a month ago now. And we talked about it, I think, last episode with the uncontained engine failure. So they grounded their fleet, which basically, I mean, grounds half of the AN-124 fleet. So now you've got the 225 coming back kind of as a, well, we know you can't choose our direct competitor who you know we're having a, a geopolitical disagreement with. So we're going to fly this plane and carry more stuff. So that's also part of the reason it's coming back, which uh, if you're interested in, in getting into the nitty gritty of things, that's that's one angle. And so that's something we could talk about maybe in a future podcast about the tug of war over the AN-124. 
while the previous episode was being released two Fridays ago, a Japan Airlines 777 was having a blown engine issue of its own. There was a uh, JAL 777-200. Its left engine fan, one of the fan blades is somewhere, we don't know. And it ripped through the engine cowling in a few places and looked pretty gnarly when I saw photos of it. They'll find that fan blade eventually, just like they somehow found that Air France 380 engine hub in Greenland, was it? You're going to need a lot of downward facing radar and a big shovel. How big a shovel? Well, I suppose you could use a small shovel. It would just take a long time. Would we need a sky crane? Because we've been on a, a thing with the sky crane today. Eventually, you will need a sky crane to get it up. Interesting. You're going to need to dig down to get up. Interesting. But yes, a sky crane would help. So yeah, that happened. Everyone's fine. They returned on a single engine. Everything's fine. or Not everything, but everyone is no, fine. The engine isn't safely. fine. The engine is certainly not fine. But that particular incident is certainly under investigation. And I'm sure we'll learn more and eventually see some sort of airworthiness directive saying, hey, look at your fan blades on the, uh, the PW4084. A few other kind of I guess, housekeeping stories, things to be aware of before we get to our 2020 year in review, which is, I don't want to say uplifting because it's the opposite of that. (laughs) Uh, No. So, uh, but we'll get there. Slot rules in Europe are being argued to be relaxed uh, to 40%. So normally it's an 80-20, use it or lose it rule. There's no traffic. So they're saying 40%, you'll be fine. So if you fly 40% of your flights, you get to keep your slot allocations for the coming year. I know that Ryanair is certainly upset about that. And some of the other low-cost carriers are, are probably a little miffed. But it seems like a... Um, a decent thing to do given the circumstances. Sure. And did I see today that uh, the Heathrow third runway is on again? Well, I didn't read the full ruling. So Britain's High Court said, what's the word I'm looking for? Overturned the appeals court ruling. So I don't know if it's quite as simple as it's on again, but they overturned the ruling saying that they couldn't build it. So I don't know if they get to automatically move forward or if there's other things still involved. I didn't get fully into that, but worth keeping an eye on for sure. And then Jason, I know that you were excited about the MC-21 flight. Oh, I'm very excited. Very excited about this. The MC-21, which is Russia's answer to, I guess it's a a wide body aircraft? (laughs) No, no, sorry. I think it's a narrow body. Honestly, I'm not quite sure. Dear listener, we've done a lot of research into the MC-21. I think it's it's actually a narrow body aircraft. But it was originally flown, not yet certified, but originally flown with uh, Pratt & Whitney engines, the, the PW1000G engines, which we just talked about on the last episode. So I guess they would make the whale sound, wouldn't they? They would. Yeah. So the uh, that's good to know that the MC21 will probably sound like a whale. But it was just flown for the first time this week with a Russian engines, actually, the United Engine Corporation PD-14s, which was originally planned to be flown by the end of 2018 and was actually delayed until damn near the end of 2020. But it did fly indeed with uh, Russian-produced engines. And I'm looking at a picture of the thing that UAC posted on Twitter, and they look disproportionate to the aircraft. They look very, very large. Have you seen this picture? No, I haven't. But you will send it to me and we will put it in the I will show send it to you right now. There you go. Literally just send it Whoa. to you. And, and they are very large engines. I mean, it's not painted in a livery. It is still like 
primer green or whatever, but it, it's a sharp looking aircraft. Yeah, they, I mean, it kind of looks like an angrier super jet. That's a good comparison. Also a, a Russian kind of aircraft. I hope this is more successful than the, the, <laughs> the super jet, but those are some big engines. Yeah, they are quite large. Now that I'm looking at the photo, they're big. It's it's kind of almost like if you put the leap engine, you know, the A320 Neo engines, if you put those on an A318. It's yeah, like that, it, it's something like along it those would, lines. It would just look I mean, outsized. It, it looks good. And and just to be clear, these are not a replacement for the Pratt and Whitney options. They're an option if anyone wants the Russian engines, I guess. I can't imagine anyone outside of Russia will take that option. Maybe some Eastern European airlines, but testing is now underway of the Russian PD-14 engines on the Russian MC-21. There you go. 2020. So by, yeah, 20, exactly. By the time that the podcast comes out on Friday and you're listening to it, the HiFly A380 will be no longer. They are retiring it on Thursday, and there will be a special flight. There there will have been a special flight and they will have drawn an image in the sky. So when it comes out on Friday, the link to the playback of that particular flight will already be in the show notes. It's like you're getting yesterday's news tomorrow. Fantastic. Today. And I, I think we already I talked know. about this, but this is officially the end of HiFly's A380 experiment, which I think we can Correct. all agree was a failure. Well, I, yes. The answer is yes. It was a failure. Yeah. It was a, an it, interesting attempt, a laudable attempt, but a failed attempt. It was a massive failure through some fault of their own, but also, I mean, there's kind of a pandemic going on. I mean, yeah, but it was a failure from day one. I mean, the first customer to put the HiFly A380 into service was Norwegian. Right off the bat, flights were delayed like six hours or something because airports couldn't accommodate the thing. And that's a JFK issue, which is it, I'll, is I'll it really blame not? on you. But uh, you, I mean, you can't just throw yeah. an A380 into an airport that's not expecting it. Sure. Certainly one of the issues. So yeah, I still think the issue with the A380 is it's both behind and ahead of its time at the same time. Yes. It's just it, for in different ways. It, it's like the wrong aircraft in different ways in the past and in the future. Yeah. I still feel like 10 years from now, we'll be seeing like, damn, if only we had that A380 still operating, it would be solve well, all our problems. They'll, they'll be around. I mean, I think they'll just, there might be a period where you see A380s sitting around for a while and then return to service. But Emirates will keep operating them and they've got what, 12 billion and so, the, I mean, they'll be around for a while at Emirates at least until whatever comes next. But High Flies is gone and we'll see if anyone on the secondary market decides that uh, they're going to give the A380 a chance. Hi-f- if you yeah. want uh, an A380, I th- believe Ty put two of its A380s up for sale. You can get two A380s, a handful of 747s. Yeah, for the, I mean, make your bid now. Yeah, Ty's got a lot for sale right now. And if you want some large aircraft, some small aircraft, uh, anything really, talk to Ty Airways. Also, leaving the fleet, British Airways operated officially last ever 747 flight. They took GBYGC, which was the BOAC heritage livery 747 that they painted at the beginning of the year, assuming that they would spend the entire year celebrating the centenary of the 
BA heritage and see how that turned out. And now that particular aircraft is done with the BA fleet, it is now at Dunsfold Aerodrome and will be preserved. So they are preserving the 747s that were painted into the heritage livery, which is a, a nice thing to know that people will be able to visit those and explore those and see some history in the years to come. So now we come to our 2020 year in review, which as I promised is not uplifting, but I suppose the only direction to go from here is up. Yeah. I'm looking through these items you, I guess, threw together earlier and some of them are good. Some of This is one of those things where I was like, is this good news? Yes, I will include it because a lot happened this year, even before we were kind of uh, blindsided by a pandemic. So we began the year with, you know, as far as major events are concerned, we began the year with the shoot down of Ukrainian International Airlines Flight 752 in Tehran. Going all the way back to January 8th, there was a ratcheting up of tensions between the US and Iran. Airlines were saying, well, we're not going to fly in Iranian airspace. We're not going to fly in Iraqi airspace. And then they, you know, kind of were giving that wide berth. PS752 departed Tehran and was shot down not long after takeoff when the missile battery mistook it for a uh, incoming missile, I guess. And we've talked about the data, we've talked about the the interim reports that have been released about the issues with the calibration of the missile battery, thinking it was coming from a different direction than it actually was. It's one of those you know stories where it didn't have to happen and should have never happened. But that's how we began the year. And I, I we had no idea what was tone. coming. Even though we started yeah. off on a terrible note, it got terribler. It got terribler. Later that month, a helicopter carrying Kobe Bryant and uh, seven other people crashed in Los Angeles in, in heavy fog. That, you know, kind of refocused attention on helicopter operations, especially in the Los Angeles area, given uh, the number of helicopters that are in the area and also kind of the operations of of helicopters in general. And so that uh, I think we're still waiting for a final report on that particular crash. But the interim report revealed uh, the impact of, of weather and, and the actions you know, of the pilot and the, uh, the aircraft involved. A sliver of good news, later uh, in February, British Airways took a 747 and thanks to a monstrous tailwind, set the uh, JFK Heathrow transatlantic speed record. They went from New York to London in under five hours. So well done to all involved and and now they're all the 747s are retired. And apologies to anyone on that flight that was trying to get a little bit of sleep. <laughs> Congratulations, you've gotten into London at, uh, oh, it's still three in the morning. Sorry. Yeah. Then we go back to Los Angeles where a Delta 777 needed to return to the airport with some issues. They needed to uh, jettison fuel. And instead of doing that over an unpopulated area, which is usually what happens and what is supposed to happen, or at a high enough altitude at which there's dispersal of the the fuel, they dumped it on final approach over a school. Yeah, that's frowned Uh, upon. Generally frowned upon, not something you want to be doing. And so they said, yep, 
our bad, sorry, and have worked to remedy that issue in that situation, but not something that you want to see and, and was one of the more head-scratcher events of this particular year. I don't even know how to describe what happened here. The crash of Pakistan Airlines Flight 8303, the pilots did everything wrong. I think basically. you just described what happened. Yeah, there's a great way to describe it. The pilots did everything wrong. They made a very steep approach, forgot to put the gear on, scraped along the runway, mangled the engines, tried to go around, and then the engines failed and the aircraft crashed. I mean, the pilots did everything. And anyone who's listened to at least a few episodes of the podcast know that I'm usually the one who is saying, wait for the report. Let's you know give deference to the investigators and, and things like that. And I, I truly believe that we should do all of those things. But we've gotten enough data and we've seen enough reports about this aircraft or about this particular flight to understand that the pilots did everything wrong. Yeah. It, and and it good. still boggles my mind. Not good. Uh, yeah. Okay. So I chose two things that are fun. Do and you have happy anything and, happy? And a little lighthearted to end the show, end the year, end this particular episode. So the first one was the final Qantas 747 flight, which was VHOEJ flying out of Sydney up to the US for fennel storage and retirement. They drew a giant kangaroo in the sky with the aircraft after doing kind of a low pass over some historical landmarks in Australia that, that are significant both to Qantas and the 747's history. So I thought that was a really cool thing. We got to follow along and it was a lot of fun to see the kangaroo take shape. We love when airlines draw things in the sky. I think it's a great thing and I'm glad that uh, you know they were able to do this on the final 747 flight. And then our most tracked flight of the year by a wide margin, was the Turkish Airlines drawing the Turkish flag over Turkey flight that happened on their National Day and National Children's Day, kind of a, a combo holiday there. And uh, they drew a, a very large Turkish flag over the, the center of the country. And over three and a half million people have followed that flight. So our second most followed flight ever and our most followed flight this year by far. Jason, can you guess which the most followed flight of all time has been? The most of all time. Of all time, yeah. Hmm. Give me a year at least. 2018, I believe. 2018, 2018. I got nothing. It was the 787 that drew the 787. Ah, back when Boeing did fun things. Back when Boeing did fun things, exactly. Uh, yeah, that it was, was the, pretty the cool. I, I believe they drew the actual Boeing like globe logo along with that, right? Not on that flight. Oh, that was the, the Max. They did do it was no, the Max drew Max. The Boeing Globe logo, I think, was the 747-8. At least I'm pretty sure that's what it was. But yeah, so that was the that was the the good news to end the year, end the episode, and end episode 100. We will have an episode in two weeks' time, but it won't be Jason and I with new information. It will be Jason and I revisiting some of our favorite guests from this year. I hope you enjoy that episode, and then we'll be back kind of uh, the second week of January with our new episodes as we've become accustomed to. Normally- We, we get a week off. We, we get a week off. 
Well, you get a week off. Normally, we'd be broadcasting this episode from Stockholm, but was not to be this year. So like we said last time, we didn't do anything incredibly special for this episode, but we are preparing when we can do things together again to properly celebrate whatever episode number that may be. But we'll look forward to that. So we hope everyone has a uh, good holiday season, whatever you might be celebrating. Please enjoy it. If you're not celebrating anything, enjoy that. Stay safe. If the vaccine is on offering to you, take it, please. And we'll reconvene in the new year. And the only way to go uh, is up. (laughs) Yeah, yeah, yeah. All right. Thanks for listening. Happy 100. Happy centennial episode. Bye. (laughs) This has been episode 100 of AvTalk. I am Ian Pechnik here as always with Jason Rabinowitz and see you at 101.